you stand for the reading of the word, please? Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. Luke says, he records this, he says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. This is the word of God. You can have a seat. So I want to jump right into this this morning. I was in the middle of preparing a whole different sermon yesterday and felt miserable about it. And um, and so I'm not sure what time I talked to Dan. I put it away probably at 2.30 and thought, I can't preach on that. Maybe another day, this is what I wanted to preach on. Specifically this morning, connecting what we believe to global calamity. Um, Global calamities are first and foremost local calamities, right? It's like it happens in happens in Turkey or Syria, which is across the world, but for them, it's very local. You know, we know when the tornadoes happened here, very local people that we knew. If there's a calamity in your family of health, it's a calamity for you. But in a global calamity, we see a, a widespread um, it, it, concern for a number of people. Now, each of us likely know people, either from a distance or very close up, that one day were just fine, and they, they uh, get into the day, and the next moment, they're either in a fight for their life or they're gone entirely. And I know some of you have worked in difficult situations like that as nurses in particular. How many tragic stories, how many calamities are we aware of in our lives? And when these things happen, the question comes, you know, why, why, God, did you allow this to happen. Well, keeping to a similar example that's found in the text this morning, what does it mean when over 25,000 or 28,000 now, I believe, a few Christians uh, in that group, mostly non-Christian though, children, adults, immoral people, and moral people, crawled into a warm bed on a cold night in Antakya, in Gaziantep, in those areas, Aleppo, and, and they, some woke up to uh, an entirely different world, and others did not make it. What does it mean when things like this happen without seeming regard to a person's morality? It's just this tragic event that's devastating for a number of people. It's, it's not about their integrity. It's not about their spirituality. It's not about their knowledge of God or lack of knowledge of God. Why, why do these things happen? And there are other questions to ask, of course, but it's the primary one that I want us to consider today in light of what's occurring in Turkey and Syria. Um, why? What's the purpose? Well, Jesus answers this well-worn question in this brief text and doesn't get to a specific purpose as though there is a one-in-one correlation between, well, this is what that was. And so everything's fine. There's a broader reality that we are to look at that is more foundational in the breadth 
that it comes in. Consider what Jesus teaches us in these few verses. I want to consider two questions this morning. First is, how are we to understand calamity? And then secondly, how are we to respond to calamity? And they intertwine. As a matter of fact, I just about left the second part out just to consider how are we to understand calamity, but we need to respond to that which we understand. So first question, how are we to understand calamity? We considered a few years ago when we were going through Luke, which was one of my favorite studies that we've done, Jesus regularly had folks asking him questions along the way. So he's on the way with the disciples and people are asking him questions or making intimations about things along the way on the path to Jerusalem particularly. And in this portion of Luke's accounting, we see that there were some present with him who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, other than this just being an absolutely brutal and tragic event in history that they knew about, what we see clearly that Pilate is an absolutely hostile, brutal tyrant who directs his men to commit atrocities like this. Why did they bring this story to Jesus? What was the, I mean, obviously it was a big deal, but why specifically did they bring this up? And in the surrounding narrative, if you remember Luke 13, 12, 13 area, Jesus had been teaching on judgment. He'd been teaching on judgment and the need for people to settle things with God before it's too late. Get things right, to get the accounts lined up, to get everything settled. And it seems that rather than consider what Jesus is telling them to do, that is namely get right with God, they bring the story up to see if it might have been an act of judgment by God against the Galileans. Oh, you, were you, was God judging the Galileans? Is that what was happening? Mm -hmm. That kind of intimation. Was God judging them, a people that they didn't care for whatsoever? It seems that they assumed that the victims themselves were to blame in some manner, and we can know this from the way Jesus answered. He, he says this in verse 2. Do you, do you think, remember Jesus is all wise, right? He knows the thoughts of men. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? You think they were worse off? You think they were worse sinners? Is that why you think that happened? And the answer, of course, I think, is, uh, yeah, they're worse sinners. They're Gentiles. This is what they believed. So when calamity struck, they just assumed that it was because bad things happened to bad people. Karma stinks, but karma comes after you. Jesus, knowing what they are intimating, calls that faulty theology. Of course, karma is faulty theology, but faulty theology into question. Certainly, sometimes God does judge people immediately. We've seen examples of that in Scripture, whether it's Ananias and Sapphira or or Herod, or, or others in the Old Testament. He is just. God is just. He is perfectly good. He's perfectly righteous. And he does whatever he wants. And he is always, always good, right, and just in everything he does in all his judgments. But we know also that there are simply terrible accidents that take place that involve both those who trust in Jesus and those who do not. We know that Christians die in various countries around the world, slaughtered by enemy tribes or terrorist organizations. Sometimes the righteous die and the wicked live. And that doesn't seem right or fair. And I've heard on many occasions that upon the death of a loved one, uh, in an unexpected fashion, one would say something along the lines of this, I don't understand why such a kind, godly woman, that God would give a kind, godly woman cancer. 
And in saying such a thing, no matter how inadvertent it is, a person's belief is exposed that there are some in this world who deserve such an end, but certainly not a child or a young mom who sacrifices it all or a dad who is very kind or a beloved friend. Consider what Spurgeon said in a sermon he preached over 160 years ago when he was responding to some absolutely tragic events locally in their uh, area. He says this, as I look for a moment on the poor, mangled bodies of those who had been so suddenly slain. This was before 24-hour-a-day news cycle, right? So he's looking at these suddenly slain men and women. My eyes find tears, but my heart does not boast. Far from me be a boastful cry, God, I thank thee that I'm not as these men are. No, 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 it's not the spirit of Christ, nor the spirit of Christianity. While we thank God that we are preserved Yet we can say it is of your mercy that we are not consumed. What Spurgeon's getting at is the only issue at hand that Jesus is speaking of in this text today. The reality is, and we need to hear this, we do not live and breathe this morning because we deserve to live and breathe this morning. We live because even though we actually deserve to die, God is absolutely merciful. It doesn't take you long in a reading of some of the historical books in the Old Testament to wonder about how God could allow or direct such things and or such things to happen. But what kind of God kills whole cities or people with plagues? What kind of God tells the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites? Of course, there's a breadth of understanding of why those things were happening in line with the holiness of God and His glory among the nations. But what kind of God actually opens up the ground and swallows people whole? And so people read some of those texts and they just... Kind of God does this. Well, friends, the reality is there are lots of things to go into about that, which we may get into in the future here, but those things aren't the right questions. Those questions aren't the right questions we're called to ask. I mean, one can ask it, but it's barking up the entirely wrong tree. The question that must be asked always, and especially in light of uh, a national emergency or a global catastrophe question that must be asked is, what kind of God lets anybody live? Not what kind of God lets people die. What kind of God actually lets anyone live? Now, this is offensive to most, but listen. God clearly reveals himself in his word as the holy and righteous creator of all things. Humanity at the forefront as those made in his image, made by him and through him and to him and for him. And no man can stand before him and live on account of the absolute treasonous, self-glorifying image of God, marring actions and thought and deed, living as enemies of God and dead in our sins. We're clearly told from the very beginning that the wages of sin is death. As all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we truly deserve to die. But for the most part, in this world, and you might feel it inside of you right now, you feel like, that's, that's not right. But it is absolutely foundational truth. We deserve to die. (laughs) 
So the fact that any person on this planet is breathing this morning points straight away to the mercy of God. So you, you sitting here, me standing here, mercy of God. Anybody on this planet standing and breathing and working, whether or not they are giving praise to God or not, whether or not they're marring the image of God or not marring the image of God, they are alive and breathing and given real life and true life and boldness and joy and all those things on account of the mercy of God. To laugh and to love and to enjoy a myriad of rich blessings. We are not the worst people on the planet, right? It's not, it's not as though there's not good that exists in us in some ways. We are created in the image of God, so there is common grace. There is good in us, but, but not good that compares to the holiness of God. It's just not even, not even close. And because it's not even close, we all fall short of the glory of God. Because it's not even close, and, and even if it was just a little bit off, but friends, it, it's not just a little bit off. It's, it's it's infinitely different. We don't attain anything that makes God look at us and give us mercy. It goes against the fact that mercy is mercy. We have been given mercy. You standing here, sitting here this morning, your friends out there, people at restaurants, just not caring about where Jesus is or who God is, people around the world who are worshiping another God entirely, who is no God at all, all those people are living this morning on account of the mercy of their creator. Why, why does God show his mercy in this way? Because he would be right to, though he promised to not do this until the end, he would be right to just start over. to do what he wants, but he has been a covenant-keeping God. And he says this, the Apostle Paul tells us by the Spirit, he says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience that is his mercy, not knowing that God's kindness or his mercy is meant to do what? Say it out with me. Lead you to repentance. Lead you to repentance. If, if you've not believed on Jesus today, the fact, again, that you're here in this moment today listening to this, the reality is that God is showing you his patience and forbearance and kindness and compassion with the intent of leading you to not take it all for granted or to not assume that other people are just living in whatever. No, nobody in Turkey or Syria were, were going to bed that night thinking this is my last night. you've not believed on Jesus today, and taking him for granted, living for yourself, he is being patient with you to lead you to repentance. And throughout the history of humanity, God allows events in our lives that remind us that death and the threat of eternal judgment is right around the corner, and we simply don't know when it's going to happen. This is not just for those who have never repented, who have never given their life to Jesus. This is for those of us who are playing with sin, who profess faith, but deny the power of holiness, who cling to a cheap grace, possibly, and think that all my sins are covered, so I'm just going to continue to live in my own way. No. 
this here is a reminder. This is a reminder that we are called to repent, to live a life of repentance and trust and obedience. We'll get to that in a moment. That's the, the message here. None of us know when we're going to die, but we are in fact going to die. None of us can predict the, predict the timing of it. And the question again isn't why God allowed those people to die, but why does God allow a world of sinners who outright reject him and possibly those who profess faith and believe in the gospel on the one hand, but don't live in a manner worthy of the gospel and actually are involved in sexual immorality and anger and bitterness and sloth and malice and all those things, just living, living in those ways. Um, we just think that God's not going to do anything. He is patient with us, merciful towards us. He's compassionate, and he's patiently calling those who continue in their unbelief and enmity towards him to repent. Throughout the rest of the sermon, I'll, 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 get, I'll get to this more specifically, but I just want you to hear, we, we are a gospel-centered church. We believe that our hope is in Jesus' righteousness alone for our salvation. I'm not saying that you need to, we need to get our act together and start living a certain way so that we are acceptable before God. What I am saying is that if we don't strive after the holiness without that God calls us to, if we don't, in the power of the Spirit, live for Him who has called us out of darkness and into wonderful light, if the Spirit is not motivating us, Spirit is not moving us to, to love Him with all of our hearts, to see that we are loved, and to walk in holiness, and we just are, you know, content to live a life of sin, then there is no hope for redemption for us. Unless we repent and believe the gospel. The, the gospel is not cheap grace. The gospel is not something we can just play with and presume upon. It is our only hope. But the Spirit changes us, molds us into the likeness of Christ, and that's where I want to go in a few moments. Friends, it's tragedy. When some tragedy befalls us in this world, rather than asking questions or jumping to conclusions or maybe not even caring, there's something far more vital to think about that is our own sin and the punishment that it deserves. It should very least, for us who truly do believe in Christ and who've given our lives to, given our lives to Christ, we, it, it can cause us to say, oh, thank you, Lord, for your mercy, and please bestow mercy on these people who are in the rubble, who don't have a hope. Unless... Unless the eternal spirit meets them in the quietness and or the loudness of the jackhammers. Going to a Christless eternity, having not heard the gospel. Jesus says, look, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. David Garland states this. He says, Jesus turns this case into an unwelcome reality check intended to force them to come to grips with the real issue facing them. It's not what Pilate's done. It's not what God will do to It's what God will do to all sinners. No, no one stands guiltless before God, and all Galileans alike will perish unless they repent. The absence of any concrete signs of judgment in one's life is not a sign of one's righteousness. 
or that a reckoning is not right around the corner. And again, it's not meant for us to walk feeling like God's just going to come down on us. It's that a life given over to Jesus is a life given over to Jesus. A, a, a life of repentance. A life of being given over to him. And when we get before the throne, we will have but one thing to say, and that will be, Jesus is my hope. He radically changed my life. I want to follow him. I've wanted to follow him. And we all do it imperfectly, but, but the reality is, if we're not walking in obedience to him, I mean, John says it so clearly in 1 John. We say we have fellowship with him, but we walk in the darkness. We, we are liars. So, so connecting what we believe to global calamity, does it need to take global calamity to cause us to reevaluate our walk with the Lord? Yeah. Jesus goes on to say, you know, what about those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think they were worse offenders than others who lived in Jerusalem? Point is, no, they're not. And certainly that answer that they knew didn't fit with what they truly believed, a belief that told them that if something bad happens to a person, then they must have done something to deserve it, either publicly or privately. And there are just many who still believe that kind of thing, that understanding, even if it's just sitting dormant in the back of our minds. And so distantly, something happens, and we say, well, they must have done something to enact whatever, whether that is something that we see on the news nationally or something that we see on the news across the world where we see, well, something big, so God must be judging them. We, we, don't, we, don't, we don't know, but what we do know is that, that these calamities are meant to cause us to consider this place of our own soul and our own hope our own belief. Tragedy is not God's way to single out the especially evil people among us. The urgent thing to be considered, again, isn't the tragedy of the massacre, the tragedy of the fallen tower, but the actual tragedy that both these instances were meant to point to, including the tragedy that happened last Monday and continues to happen today. The real tragedy is in verse 5. You will all likewise perish unless you repent. That, that's, that's the tragedy. That's the bigger tragedy in this tragedy. The tragedy isn't that your body is killed in the temple or that a tower fell on you or the cancer ate at you or your heart failed or you were killed in a war or an accident or an act of terrorism or multiple earthquakes. The real tragedy is that if you don't repent before death, inevitably comes you will perish eternally. It may not come in the same way as these others, but the day of one's death is coming just as certainly. God's word says it clearly, right? It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes judgment. The actual tragedy is that you experience the judgment of God eternally because you will not repent in your stubbornness. You will not repent and turn to him in belief. So how, does, how do we connect what we believe to global calamity? Do we believe at all about King Jesus? 
do we not just see him as a Savior, but as Lord, a Savior and Lord together, that we are yielding to him regularly and routinely, that we're living for him, not just a category of belief. The matter isn't about how people die or when they die, it's that they die without repenting. Philip Reichen says this in his commentary on this passage. He says, we are all going to die. This is something people often seem to forget after a disaster. We are horrified at the way people have died, and rightly so. We're shocked and grieved that people have fallen from the sky or been swept out to sea or killed in cold blood. In our distress, we sometimes fail to see the real tragedy, which is that we're all going to die. In a disaster, death comes all of a sudden, yet the overall death rate remains unchanged. It's still 100%. Since we belong to a lost and fallen race, we are all destined to die, and after that, we will face the final judgment. John Calvin wisely said, all the calamities that happen in the world are testimonies of the wrath of God. And according to Jesus, this is what we should think about after a disaster, our own imminent demise and our great need for the forgiveness of our sins. Unless we repent, we too will perish. This is the urgent truth we need to understand. This is the urgent truth also. We need to understand why, why we proclaim the gospel at all. Not just on the day that Jesus is speaking, but today as well. It's an urgent truth to understand, especially as we come face to face with the tragedy still unfolding in those two countries across the world where many have passed from life, this life, to the next life. This calamity is meant by the mercy of God to shake us out of our stubborn, self-sufficient stupor to give us sober understanding as to the reality of the situation, the sobriety of our life, and to respond appropriately. I've already spoken about how we're to respond, but let me ask the question more specifically, and we'll get into it a little bit more specifically in this last point. How are we to respond to calamity? Because everybody responds. We all Respond. Perhaps it's with incredulity, perhaps it's sobriety, perhaps it's anger, perhaps it's sadness, perhaps it's with general disregard, seeing as that it really hasn't affected you personally. But Jesus is saying that there is only one proper response when we're confronted with a calamity like this, and that response is significantly urgent, like we just spoke of. How are, how are we to res- respond? We are to respond with repentance. Repentance, all of us. All of us. This may evoke a negative stereotype picture of a person standing on a street corner with a a sandwich sign stating that specific truth, but before the sandwich sign dude on the street corner or the guy behind home plate holding up a sign stands the Son of God stating this truth with no anger, with mercy and compassion and patience to a self-sufficient people like you and like me and our neighbors and our government officials and people across the world. The question we need to consider ourselves this morning, whether we're in full agreement with a sermon or not, or when we hear God's word spoken and preached, do we ever ask this question? How do I need to repent because of what I just heard? And even when we're hearing great and wonderful news of gospel grace, it is our response, how do I need to repent because of what I've just heard? Or is it just the same information going through our heads 
in one ear, kind of out the other. How, what is it that the Lord is calling us to do? Repent. Believe the gospel. The urgent gift of ongoing repentance in response to the preaching of the Word of God and meditating on and studying of the Word of God might very well be the biggest thing that's hindering the church at large, and perhaps even our church, as wonderful as this church is. I think we often think the things we read and hear from God's Word are interesting, perhaps they're intriguing, uh, perhaps they're obligatory to listen to, perhaps classifying them in the category of opinion, or perhaps something else that somebody else needs to hear but not the very thing that every single one of us need to hear every single week in some manner and respond in repentance to. I I don't stand here as one believing that like my voice is God's voice this morning, but I do believe that the Lord God in His sovereignty has allowed this word and this role of pastor to speak with some level of authority as though... as though God is speaking. Not significantly humbling. I'm not saying that what I wrote, God was, God was writing, and this is what... I'm saying that God utilizes the preached word. God utilizes when you are out sharing Christ with people, when you are utilizing uh, the proclamation of the gospel with people, it is though you are being a herald for the Savior, for the, for the one who created you, for the one who is calling. You're the one calling, but before you is him calling. So when I'm preaching, it is as though, it is as though the Lord is speaking not just to you, but to me. Don't be satisfied with half-hearted Christianity. There is no such thing. Over the years, it's been my experience and observation that the areas of sin in our lives that we are most embarrassed of and ashamed of, uh, we can tend to minimize or deny rather than eagerly repent of. The common to man sins. 1 Corinthians 10.13, right? No temptation man is, deals with that's not common to man. So I struggle with it. They struggle with it. Spirit speaks. He's calling us to repent and not be satisfied. And actually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to strive after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. It's not anti-gospel. It is the power of the Spirit on account of the gospel. We don't want to think we're as bad as that sin tells us we are. We don't want to face up to the reality that we might just be as bad as the sin we succumb to regularly tells us we are. But listen, the urgent gift of repentance that God graciously gives us begins with us knowing and addressing not someone else's sin, but our sin. Not minimizing it, not denying it, not doing anything but confessing it. It's my sin, not someone else's. Mine, and I need to repent of it. It's not that we're not affected by other people's sins. It's not that other people's sins aren't something that we need to help people work through and find repentance in and find freedom from and deliverance in. It's that the first thing that we think of is, what is it that God is speaking to me about right now? What is it the spirit that you are causing me to think about that I must repent of and I must rebuke and I must have nothing to do with so that I walk in holiness for the glory of God and for my 
joy. We love to talk about the filling of the Spirit as it relates to the gifts of the Spirit. But the primary, oh, the glorious role of the Spirit that fills the people of God in the new covenant is in bringing us to Christ, to unite us to Christ and to empower us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And yes, gifts are a piece of that. But boy, oh boy, isn't that the Holy Spirit that is filling us, that has filled us, we are indwelled by and filled by that we might know the strengthening of the Spirit to know how wide and long and high the love of Christ is for us. And that we might strive after the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is what the Spirit does. This is when, when the deacons, the proto-deacons were called. They were supposed to be men of the Spirit, men filled with the Spirit. What does that mean? What well, it means is holiness. They, they were men filled with the Spirit, filled with a love for God, that God, the Holy Spirit had regenerated them. The Holy Spirit had called them to His own. The Holy Spirit had strengthened them to a place where they lived for God. They wanted to follow him and nothing would stop them. So Stephen gets on his route in chapter 7 of Acts. He begins to declare the gospel of grace with boldness. The Spirit fills them afresh in that moment to do exactly what he was called to do, to obey the Lord in that situation. So whatever situation we're in, man, the Spirit is working in us. He's already, he's not something we have to try to clamor for. The Spirit is indwelling all those who have trusted Christ We've been regenerated by the Spirit. We've been filled by the Spirit. And we are called to continually be being filled with the Spirit. And that is, in essence, yielding to the Spirit, that He might gain more control of us, increasingly so. The urgent response of repentance begins with knowing our own sin, recognizing it for what it is, turning away from that thing or those things, and turning to Christ in certain hope for forgiveness and life strengthened and empowered by the Holy Spirit and not being satisfied with half-hearted, Christianity because, well, because we trust in the righteousness of Jesus. God's grace is always greater than our sin. We can always repent. What what a gift repentance is. Far from being something that, I got to do that again. It's just like, oh, it's a gift. If you care about sin, if you care about the, the rude thoughts that are in your mind, or you care about the, 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 the lack of holiness in whatever area of your life, and, and, and we all have them, if we care about them, it's the role of the Spirit that's causing that to, to uh, toil up inside of us that we must repent and believe the gospel and believe that our hope is in Jesus. And I want to follow him. Ray Orland comments this way about repentance. Two observations, he says. One, the motive for repentance is not only sorrow for sin, but also a sense of the mercy of God in Christ. We have zero motivation to repent unless we see the mercy of God awaiting for us. And and listen, we started out the fact that the reason we're sitting here this morning at all, no matter who you are, no matter what's going on in your heart, no matter what's going on in your mind, no matter what kind of sin you've experienced, you are here on account of the mercy of God. And he is calling you to himself. Matter of fact, the, the call to worship, which we were having some struggles with sound initially, so we totally missed the call to worship. But listen to this, Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Without 
Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what's good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. This is the call of King Jesus. This is not go away from me, you filthy person. It is, oh, you don't got any food? I got food. Come to me. You thirsty? I, I have I have water which, which will never stop. It will stream out of me over and over and over again. And so we come hungry and thirsty. So unless we see the mercy of God awaiting us, that's mercy. Not the slap of God, Ray says, but the embrace of God. Repentance, feel that. Do, do we not tend to just feel wrongly the correction Perhaps it's because of the way we correct. Perhaps it's the way we've been corrected. When we come to him, he invites us not to be slapped, but to be embraced. Repentance is not just turning from sin. Not even that primarily. Repentance is primarily turning to God moment by moment because he promises mercy to the penitent. Second thing, the second observation, he says the outcome of repentance is not a restored status quo, getting back to normal, getting back to where we were before we sinned, evading the consequences of sin. The outcome of true repentance is new obedience, unprecedented obedience, perhaps unheard of obedience, newness, of life. True repentance is hope-inspired and newness-creating. And listen, when the Spirit of God opens our eyes to see our sin and we see what our sin deserves, it's extremely difficult to believe that God would show us mercy, but that's precisely what Jesus is reminding us of in this proclamation to this crowd on that day. It was not a slap in the face, but it was a gracious, merciful hand on the shoulder from an eye-to-eye call to repentance on account of God being so very ready to forgive them, so much so that the very one who was looking eye-to-eye is the one whom he sent, not only to simply heal and to deliver from sin, death, and Satan, but especially to die under the just judgment of God so that we would not have to, so that we would walk in newness of life for the glory of God and for our joy. And connecting what we believe to global calamity is not just this thing that happened. We're called to grapple with all of this. The very fact that it's Jesus, the Son of God, graciously calling these people and us this morning to repentance is the mercy of God seen with clarity. In fact, before anyone wanted the mercy of God, God had already sent his Son into the world to preach a gospel of repentance to them because he himself was going to bear the judgment. A much worse judgment than the people who were slaughtered by Pilate. A much worse judgment than those who died in the falling of that tower in Siloam or have died in the unimaginable horrors taking place still today on the far side of the Mediterranean. No, no, this this was an infinitely worse judgment. That is the bearing of the cup of God's righteous wrath. All because of the Father's love. Sin had to be punished. So it's not as though God the Father just ready to take it out on everybody. But sin against holy God is not unaffected in God's emotional state. Just 
anger, righteous anger, not just against things in the culture, not just against things, but against his people, possibly people who profess him, who are living in sin and living a lie. He bore the cup of God's wrath and the righteous judgment against all the punishment for the sins of all who would ever trust in him and continue trusting in him until that final day. Isaiah prophesied that many years before in Isaiah 53. Friends, the the cross of Jesus is a clear indicator that God is more ready to forgive you of your sin than you are to repent of it. He knows all about us. He knows about you. He knows about me. He knows the worst things about us, the things we're absolutely ashamed of. And he demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And that's the message we get to remind ourselves of over and over and over and over and over again. And it's a message that local or global calamity brings us face to face with utter sobriety. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. One man wisely stated, and I'm adding this because it just feels affirming to me. Sometimes I think like a sermon like this, it's like, oh, do I, do I need to preach this? And he says that some people do not like to hear much of repentance, but I think it's so necessary that if I should die in the pulpit, I should desire to die preaching repentance. And if I should die out of the pulpit, I should desire to die practicing it. It's when I preach, I preach to myself. The Lord's speaking to me. Considering what I need to repent of. What I need to stop playing around with. Friends, there's never been a human who repented of their sin and believed in the good news of forgiveness in Christ whom God did not forgive. So face the reality of your sin with eyes wide open and drink in the refreshing water of gospel repentance and forgiveness and freedom. Many of us in this room, we may be tempted to think that repentance is simply something that's done once, and, you know, I mean, if I get really bad, I'll do it again. But Christianity is a life that is marked by repentance, and I hope you've got that in the way that I've communicated this morning. Not a repentance that sits in a perpetual state of just remorse over past sin and sin hunting and making resolutions to promise to do better next time and, and just you know, trying to get at the root of every single thing in your life or other people's lives. Instead, it's a lifestyle of repentance that the Holy Spirit is working in us so that we might know again how wide and long and high and deep the love of Christ is for us. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you feel like you have all the fullness of God? This is a life filled with the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit. Again, not something to attain to by way of unique experience, but something that we continually yield to in a response to the gift of God, the power of God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We are continuationists here because we believe this, and we believe that all the gifts are for today. The Spirit is active in every single way He's been active throughout the generations. We believe that wholeheartedly. We do not back away from that whatsoever. 
but we also do not demean the primary role of the Spirit, and that is to give us eyes to see Christ and to walk in newness of life and to love him. So we might love the gift, right? But do we love the giver? I know that's a colloquialism, but it's reality. Do we love the giver? Do we love him? Do we want to follow him, or do we just want to see healings? Do we just want to speak in tongues? Do we just want to prophesy? All of those for the glory of God, yes. But what about our lives? I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. Yielding to the Holy Spirit, we are changed by God and renewed in Him. And, and, and connecting what we believe to global calamity causes us to, to have to wrestle with that rather than, like, why did that happen? Well, hey, let it. Why didn't it happen to me? And if it did happen to me, Where's my hope? We're given an opportunity for a sober reality check. Surrendering to King Jesus through repentance is foundational to our lives, for through it we are healed by God and loved by God. And to make it even better from this, repentance will flow a genuine love for people and a proper posture toward those who continue in enmity towards God and His Word. Not just people like you and me, but all people. And a realization that others are just like us, sinners who need the living God, the Holy Spirit to see and to savor the forgiveness and freedom and hope of eternal life in Jesus. And so, so we look outwards, but first, before we look outwards, I ask you these questions. Are you aware of the energy of the Holy Spirit within you, the person of the Holy Spirit, the power of God within you to fight sin, to walk in holiness, to repent, do you know what it is to be filled with despair about yourself? And are you, are you hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Not just despair about yourself, but despair about yourself that caused you to look up from where your help comes from, and that is Jesus and him crucified. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you want to be like Christ and be near to him and to know him? Are you looking forward to spending eternity with him? There's, there's no value in believing that you've given yourself to Christ unless there's some evidence of this. Did you want Jesus to be Lord of your life or no? You want what he has to offer to be sure, but do you desire to yield entirely to him? Do you? Do I? Are you sure you want this? Are you sure that you desire it? Are you, are you sure that you want your personality to be taken over completely by the one who will expect obedience to the word of God? Not just brutal obedience, right? Not, not that, but just like loving obedience, getting to know him and follow his word in which there is life and joy and vibrance and fullness of God. Are, are you sure that you want your personality to be taken over by one who will not tolerate self-sufficiency or self-righteousness or anger or pride? Do you desire to have your personality taken over by one who stands in sharp opposition to the ways of the world no tolerance of evil, no smiling at crude jokes, no laughing off things that God hates, no quick-witted degradation of another person made in the image of God. Surrendering, yielding, as the Spirit convicts and challenges that we would recognize our need for a Savior and we have the joy of repenting and following Him in obedience. When global calamity is happening before our eyes, may we be keenly and freshly aware that King Jesus is lovingly inviting us to consider our own lives before Him with sober 
intention, repenting and trusting all the more in the mercy and grace of God through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I don't know where to, where to go outside of, outside of singing and take, having the Lord's Supper in a few moments, things that we planned, but, but listen, I, I don't, I sure don't want anybody to leave here feeling those who have trusted in Jesus walking away feeling condemned. But at risk, that potentially happening. The gospel of grace is not cheap. And those of us who preach the gospel of grace, those who listen to the gospel of grace, those who remind ourselves of the gospel of grace, beautiful and wonderful and right, but the gospel of grace teaches us that we have been radically moved from one kingdom to another, not having one foot in each kingdom. Because to have one foot in each kingdom means that you're actually remaining in the old kingdom. Put to death the old man and put on Christ. Friends, this, this calamity this week causes us to pray, actually causes us to pray, Cause us to grieve over the loss of human life, but not just human life, but those many human lives who have gone to a Christless eternity. And it could be your neighbors, and it could be you. And so it's imperative that as we consider these global calamities, as we consider calamities around us, as we consider health, as we consider our lives, that we walk in the newness of life that we've been called into and not play Christianity but live for Christ with all we are, by the power of the Spirit. Not messing around with sin, but repenting as the Spirit convicts us and walking in that joy that we have of not, a, not being down-nosed about like, well, I'm just a sinner. It's, it's like the Spirit showed me, showed me that that there's this existing in my life. I want to repent of that and I want to believe the gospel. And, and Spirit, would you... Would you Tear that out of my life and help you say no to that thing next time. And to walk in holiness.